Take your Bibles again and open them to 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10 and verses 14 through 22. Here the Apostle Paul reminds the Corinthian church, even as he reminds us of the necessity to flee from idolatry. There is an urgent exhortation given to the church of the Lord Jesus to flee from idolatry. And as he reasons his way through the uh, necessity and urgency of that exhortation, he reminds us that we are partakers of Christ. He's already drawn attention to the fact that even the fathers of old were partakers of Christ in some measure. They drank of a spiritual drink. They ate a spiritual food, which was Christ. And the apostle reminds us that this uh, was their portion in order to our instruction. That is, they were examples unto us for our instruction, for our admonition. The ends of the ages have come upon us, verse 11. In short, Christ has come. He is no longer figured, promised in the types and shadows of the law, but he has come. And he has established his kingdom. He has established his churches. And so much more for us, then, is it an abomination to fiddle, as it were, with idolatry. He urges us, then, not to give in to temptation, but to think of temptation aright, to think of it not as something that we can bear by ourselves, but that we are able to bear because God is our strength. And God's grace is sufficient for us in the day of trial. And so then he repeats his exhortation to flee from idolatry. Do not be idolaters as were the Israelites, but flee from idolatry. And again, there is a heightened urgency for us because the end of the ages have come upon us. Christ has come. And Christ is no longer figured forth, as it were, by the rock in the wilderness. But he has come. He is present. And he blesses us. He blesses his churches. And even we, 
partake of him. We partake of him truly, Paul underscores. We partake of Christ really and truly, though spiritually. We partake of him, his blood and his bread, or his blood and his body, through the cup and the bread of the supper. And the apostles point in drawing attention in verses 16 and 17. Apostles point here in drawing attention to the supper or to the communion of the Lord's table is to remind us not only of what we have in the table, of what we enjoy in the supper of our Lord, but how what that supper signifies is so contrary to the worship of idols. And therefore, how we who partake of Christ, who partake even of the supper, are to flee from idolatry. In other words, undergirding the apostles' exhortation to flee from idolatry is the reality, the saving reality, the gracious reality that all and everyone who believes in Jesus Christ is a partaker of Christ and of his graces. And so it would be contrary for those who are partakers of Christ to become partakers of a table of demons, to be a participant in idolatry and false worship. That language of all and everyone who believes are partakers of Christ and his graces comes from the first part of answer 54 of an Orthodox catechism. The answer to this question, what do these words mean, the communion of saints? First, that all and everyone who believes are in common partakers of Christ and all his graces as being his members. We are joined to Christ, united to Jesus Christ, and so we are together in common partakers of Christ and of his graces. We have In short, saving fellowship, saving communion with Christ. And the apostle teaches us here that that saving union or communion is signified and sealed in the supper. In the partaking of the cup and in the partaking of the bread. There is, for us who believe, by the working of the Spirit, a partaking 
a communion with Christ. Jesus gave himself for his own, writes Herman Bovink. But he also gives himself to his own. The cup and the bread in the Lord's Supper is a participation in the blood and in the body of Christ. The Supper does not itself constitute this partaking. That is, it is not that we become partakers of Christ through the Supper. But the Supper is a means whereby we do enjoy. It is a means whereby we are reminded It is a means whereby communicated to us is this reality of communion and partaking. In some measure then, when we come to the table of our Lord, when we come to this communion, Christ is giving himself to us. He is reminding us He is showing us that sacrifice of himself in his death. But also, as our confession teaches, he is also confirming the faith of all believers in all the benefits of his death. He is giving to us spiritual nourishment. In fact, our confession reminds us that worthy receivers outwardly partaking of the visible elements in this ordinance do then also inwardly by faith, really and indeed, yet not carnally and corporally, but spiritually receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death. The supper is truly a means of grace that points us to the reality of our participation in Christ. That we are, who believe we are, partakers of Christ and all of his graces. Now, we want to focus how the Lord's Supper in particular, this morning we want to focus how the Lord's Supper in particular serves God's purposes of grace, serves Christ's purposes of grace, and how it is that in this means of grace, in this covenant meal, we have communion, Not only with one another, but ultimately communion with Christ. How our coming and eating and drinking signifies and seals our partaking of Christ and all of his benefits. Notice then 
verse 16. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not a communion of the body of Christ? First of all, notice that the Lord's Supper is communion. That's an obvious statement. It's the very language of the text. But the language is significant, and the way in which Paul uses it is significant. The language simply means fellowship, a sharing in, a common participation. It's common in the sense that we all are participating, partaking. We together as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, as one of his churches, are sharing in the cup of the Lord, sharing in the bread which is broken. And so again, undergirding what Paul says here about the supper is that which we all together have in common. We who believe, we who are members of the church of Jesus Christ, we are ultimately and fundamentally members of Christ himself. We share in Christ. We are all together partakers of Christ. But as Paul uses the language here too to speak of that communion which occurs in the blessing of the cup and in the breaking of the bread, that communion or participation which occurs when the church of Jesus Christ gathers at the table of Christ, he's telling us something significant about the nature of the supper. When Paul uses this word, communion, twice here in this verse, he's using a word that is not unfamiliar to the church at Corinth, nor should it be unfamiliar to us. It's used quite frequently throughout the New Testament. It's used in Acts 2 and verse 42, for example, to speak of a particular element of new covenant worship, the giving of alms, which is to be understood in that context as a concrete and particular expression of the shared life of the church, of the fellowship that marks the church. Earlier in the letter, in this letter, 1 Corinthians, Paul uses this word in a way which sheds significant light on his usage here. In 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 9, Paul has in view not a shared life which takes expression in the giving of gifts, temporal gifts to one another, but he has in view our participation or our common fellowship with the Lord Jesus and his benefits. 
in chapter 1 and verse 9. He says, God is faithful through whom ye were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. To be sure, there is a way in which this speaks of an ecclesiastical fellowship, a churchly fellowship. The shared life of the church itself But it speaks fundamentally, it speaks foundationally of the fact that we who are members of the church have a calling into the fellowship, into a participation or a partaking of His Son, God's Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. There is a spiritual saving communion that Paul speaks of here. It is a participation in a particular calling, a participation in Christ himself of being engrafted into him and abiding in him by the grace of the God who is faithful and unchanging. He speaks of a communion of calling, a communion of sonship, a communion in and with Jesus Christ by grace through faith. So when Paul comes to speak of communion here in chapter 10, he has the same thing in view. He has in view communion in and with the Lord Jesus. The context confirms this. Again, he's urging us to flee idolatry. And he appeals to the way in which we have communion with the blood of Christ and communion with the body of Christ when we come to the table. This communion is contrary to idolatry. How, Paul? Well, don't you know that when you have communion, or don't you know that when you participate in a sacrifice, or participate in, we might say, an outward ceremony, you have communion with the thing that is signified by that ceremony? You participate in it. You become a partaker of it. It was true for Israel after the flesh. When they ate the sacrifices, they had communion with the altar. And even though idols aren't real, that is, they don't exist except in the mind of the idolater, the heart of the idolater. And so things sacrificed to them are really nothing. Nevertheless, to participate in these idolatrous sacrifices is to participate with demons. It is to have communion with demons. And you cannot 
drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of, the de- of demons. Because you cannot partake of Christ and partake of demons or have fellowship with Christ and have fellowship with demons at the same time. These are opposing spiritual realities. John Gill put it this way. If believers, by eating the bread and drinking the wine in the Lord's Supper, spiritually partake of Christ, of his body and of his blood, and have communion with him, then such who eat of things sacrificed unto idols have in so doing communion with them and partake of the table of devils and are so are guilty of idolatry, which the apostle would have them avoid. There is a real communion with the thing signified by the outward ceremony. There is for us then real communion with the blood of Christ and the body of Christ in the cup of blessing and in the broken bread. Communion then does not consist of our sitting at the table together. It consists of eating the same bread, drinking the same wine, receiving, as it were, the same blessings, having in common That is, the thing that is signified by these signs, Christ himself. Communion, when we think of it as the Lord's table, is not then an empty rite. It's not merely a physical activity, eating and drinking but it is a spiritual eating and drinking. It is a communion effected by the Holy Spirit that focuses not on the fact that we are together, but rather on what it is we have in common together, namely Christ and his blessings. Christ and his graces. To have communion then at the table of the Lord is to have through the Lord's Supper some kind of relation to Christ. Some kind of relation to the blood of Christ and the body of Christ. More particularly then, we want to notice secondly, not only that the Lord's Supper is communion, but the Lord's Supper is a participation 
in Christ and in his benefits. In particular, the communion or the relationship that we have to the blood and the body of Christ when we come and together partake of the supper is a relation to Christ, a relation of participation, a relation of partaking. Not, again, a physical partaking. What we eat remains bread, what we drink remains wine. But the eating and the drinking of this bread and this wine speaks to our participation in Christ. To a common relationship which each of us as believers has to Christ's body and Christ's blood. Paul teaches this by asking the Corinthian church two rhetorical questions. He knows that they know these things. He's already taught them. As he goes on to speak in chapter 11 of the Lord's Supper, he says there that he's really reminding them of things he's already taught them. Reminding them of that which Christ himself gave to him and he passed on to them. And so he's asking questions which they ought readily to say, oh yeah, that's right. Same with us. We ought to hear these questions and say, oh, oh yes, that's right. Surely, surely the cup of blessing which we bless is a communion of the blood of Christ. Certainly, yes, Paul, you're right. The bread which we break is a communion of the body of Christ. And again, he's asking these questions to demonstrate the absurdity of participating in idolatrous worship. You can't participate in the table of demons, which is what idolatry is, and participate in the supper of the Lord. Because both speak to a spiritual reality. You can't have communion with demons and communion with Christ. Because you're not partakers of demons, you're partakers of Christ. You have saving spiritual communion with Christ which is signified and sealed at the table. So how can you have any kind of spiritual relationship, any kind of spiritual communion with demons, which is what's signified in pagan sacrifices, idolatrous sacrifices. Paul wants us to remember as we face the prospect of idolatry and participation in idolatry, he wants us to remember and have clearly in our minds that we as Christians, that we as members of Christ have 
participation with Christ. We are partakers of Christ, of his benefits, of his graces. There's never a moment when we're out of fellowship with him, when we're out of communion with him, when we're not partakers of him. And the reality is the table tells us this again and again and again. The table even seals this to our hearts. It assures us. And so as we participate in the table, there is, in a manner of speaking, a participation in Christ. Not an eating and drinking of him physically, that is, his physical body, but in eating and drinking of him spiritually that reminds us that this is our state. This side of grace, as it were, and this side of glory that is between our calling into fellowship with Christ and our beholding of Christ by sight, this is our status. This is our state. We are participants, partakers of Christ. And when we come to the table, this is shown to us. This is sealed to us. We have in this moment together an enjoying of a present participation in the blood and in the body of Jesus Christ. We, by faith, enjoy in these moments fellowship with Christ and his benefits. Yes, Christ's blood was shed once for all. Yes, his body was broken once for all. Christ is not now dying again. Neither is he still in the state of death. He's risen. He's ascended. And so our present communion is with the exalted Christ, one that entails our present participation, our present partaking of the benefits of his once-for-all death. The supper then pledges and promises Christ and his benefits to us and the supper enables us to enjoy to receive to share in those benefits once for all gained for us by our lord we might put it this way what christ obtained once for all at the cross is communicated and confirmed to us to believers by Christ himself in the supper. One has put it this way, the point being made from this text is that the cup and the bread are signs which signify present participation or present communion in the present benefits procured by Christ's blood and body. Communion of the blood and body of Christ means spiritual nourishment is brought to our souls. It is present participation in the present benefits of Christ's death for those properly partaking. 
And then this author says this, in other words, the Lord's Supper is a means of grace. Christ, our crucified, risen, ascended, and reigning Lord, is communicating something to us, his people. And he is communicating to us this reality that we are partakers of Christ and of his benefits. He's telling us, he's assuring us that he is a perfect Savior. That his sacrifice is a perfect sacrifice and that we, though weak in faith, though we tempted, though we tried, though we who live with idolatry smack dab in our face, we belong to him. And in him, we, his people, have everything that we need. We who eat the bread broken, we who eat, or excuse me, drink of the cup, enjoy spiritual, vital communion with Christ at the table. Christ gives himself to us. Christ as it were, shares his blessings with us. Christ communicates to us great good. Christ says that there is a reality which is never broken, a reality never suspended. You are mine. And everything that I have by virtue of my sacrifice is yours. And that reality is declared to us at the table. That reality is, we might say, shared with us by Christ, communicated to us as we have communion, not only with one another, but with him. And in this, our faith is strengthened so that we might flee from idolatry, so that we might run in the face of temptation, running away from temptation and running to the Lord our God. Here our faith is strengthened. One 16th century author puts it this way. The breaking and eating of this bread and partaking of this cup are a sure pledge and sign by which Christ testifies to all of us who believe in him that as surely as we eat this bread broken for us and drink this cup passed out to us, 
which nourish physical and temporal life. So surely were his body broken and blood shed for us. So surely are they for us spiritual food and drink of eternal life. And so surely do we have communion with him and share in the new covenant. Surely we are participants. Surely we are partakers of Christ and of his benefits. How do we know that? Christ declares it here. Christ seals it here at the table. Brethren, we have fellowship together with Christ. Our very spiritual existence, our spiritual life is a life of fellowship with God's Son. We've been called out of fellowship with darkness, called out of fellowship with sin, and called into fellowship with God's own Son, the Lord Jesus himself. The supper does not establish that communion. The supper does not create that communion. Christ, by his Spirit, working through the Word, creates that fellowship creates that bond uniting us to Jesus Christ. But that bond, that communion, that fellowship is strengthened. That fellowship is nourished. As our faith is nourished, as our faith is strengthened when we come to the table because we are eating and drinking of bread and of a cup respectively that give to faith, that Christ gives to faith, Christ and his benefits. Christ here gives himself to you precisely because he has already given himself for you and called you into union and fellowship with himself. We have communion with Christ. We are partakers of Christ and his benefits. All of the blessings of his death are ours. But Christ, when we come to the table, assures us of this fact. As he nourishes us with his body and his blood. In this way, surely, Herman Bavink was right when he said this. Of primary importance in the Lord's Supper is what God does, not what we do. The Lord's Supper is above all a gift of God, a benefit of Christ, a means of communicating his grace. 
If the Lord's Supper were only a memorial meal and an act of confession, it would cease to be a sacrament in the true sense. But the Lord's Supper is on the same level as the word and baptism, and therefore must, like them, be regarded, first of all, as a message and assurance to us of divine grace. We can put this more specifically with respect to the supper. The Lord's Supper must be regarded, first of all, as a message and assurance to us of Christ's declaration from the cross. It is finished. Even more, it is a message and an assurance to us that because it is finished, we have been called by God into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. When we come today to the table then, we ought to come trusting in the Lord Jesus. Not in ourselves, because we don't have within ourselves or by ourselves anything that would make us able to believe or able to trust or able to rest. But by grace, that is because God is faithful, he communicates to us that grace by which we may trust, by which we may rest, by which we may receive the benefits and blessings of Christ. And when we come and partake of the cup and partake of the bread, let us remember that we are participating in Christ. We are receiving that food which is necessary for our souls And let us remember that when we come to the table, we are coming as those who have communion with the Lord Jesus. And as such, we cannot have fellowship with idols. We cannot have fellowship with that which is contrary to the Lord Jesus. Let us not dare to provoke the Lord to jealousy. But let us with thankful hearts come and receive what God is pleased to give us a common share in Christ, a common share in the benefits of his death, a common share in his graces. Let's pray.